Okay, recording, go. G'day, welcome to another edition of The Bar. This is our first one for October. This year is absolutely flying through. And uh, with a new month brings a new co-host. I'm sitting for the first time ever with someone who is not Georgia Dixon. I'm sitting with a young lady or a probably slightly older lady these days by the name of Patchy Dixon. Patchy, nice to have you here. No, getting absolutely nothing from Patchy. (laughs) (laughs) Just getting a little little sort of nod of the head. Uh, Georgia, you might want to explain for a little... You know, our our very confused listeners at the moment. Who is Patchy Dixon and why is she on the bar today? So Patchy Dixon is my dog. She is a golden Labrador and she has been in our family for 14, well, alive for 14 years now. Um, we have her on the podcast today because we are interviewing a very interesting guest who will be talking all about animal law. So we thought we'd have on some animals at the beginning unfortunately you've chosen my dog who doesn't make much sound so and doesn't speak english so not quite the best co-host um but only marginally worse than me as opposed to those dogs that uh that do speak english what's patchy been up to she's been working from home (laughs) ah yes working very hard i mean pre-coronavirus she was working at home but she's working very hard on analyzing the food that she gets you know it's day to day but hopefully one day it will change for her um maybe a study over 14 years whether your taste buds change not really sure um then you know she spends some time napping it's very important to have a work-life balance so she makes sure that she does that every day and then sometimes having a chat over the fence to the neighbor's dog uh got to keep those social interactions up for a balanced lifestyle yeah, good on you, Patch, and uh, still going strong at 14 years old. That's 98 in human years or something like that. 98, 98. So she's due to receive a letter from the Queen very soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was actually reading an article that said seven years per one human year is not always the correct uh, mathematics for working out a dog's age because smaller dogs live a lot longer than older dogs so it's it's a slightly less number for smaller dogs can't remember the exact thing look it up in the internet there is a table um but yes she is waiting on her letter from the queen in the next few months hopefully and as a big dog she might be even older than 98 then that no no i think it was more that it was less of a number for small dogs so it's still around seven it also it uh, this is why they needed a full table because get ready to be blown out of your seat um because as they get older the number gets bigger right i see right so because they deteriorate more the older they get so it was so like a bit of an exponential graph kind of thing that makes sense because at at about that age of like nine in human years they almost like rapidly just get white hairs and start to you know what i mean like it's, it's a very quick process for humans oh nine human years for the dog (laughs) look i was going gray at 16 and i thought that was early but nine-year-olds whoa i reckon i reckon my dog looked basically the same from about 
a puppy to, well, not a puppy, but from one years to like nine years old and then the the ageing phase, she'll hate me saying this, the ageing phase is quite <laughs> quick after that. She's still beautiful, Molly. Um, but I agree. It was probably two or three years ago where she just suddenly turned old. I don't know. We actually, we picked our dog out of the litter because she seemed like the fun dog. She was the playful one. You know, she was jumping up and down, excited to see us. They all were, but... Um, that quickly turned into the psycho dog, uh, yeah. because for literally like the first 10 or to 12 years, which is very old for a dog, she'd be jumping up on every single person she met. She actually yeah. ripped one of my friend's shirts, like jumping up cause she was so excited to see her. Um, <laughs> and she, pa- um, sorry, not passed, definitely failed puppy school three times, I think, but she was always the fun dog. So we love her. Not a straight-A student by any means, but our God, guest no. on the podcast today <laughs> certainly was. We are on the topic of animals and animal law because we are interviewing today a, uh, a former UTS student by the name of Ashley Best. And when I say former UTS student, a very, very distinguished one at that, uh, a UTS law valedictorian in 2016 while ju- juggling uh, mooting and a Jessup international law moot court competition as the best applicant and uh, she actually was so good that UTS wanted her back to come back as an academic. Uh, Ashley Clarked at Allens for a little while, she was then a grad at Allens but what we're most interested in today is Ashley's expertise in animal law, currently completing a PhD at Melbourne University analysing the legal status of animals in natural disasters. Looks like it's going to be a very very interesting very unique episode, Georgia. Yes, I can't wait. I do not know much at all about animal law for someone that does have a dog. So I'm excited to see what she has to say, particularly in the realm of natural disasters. Right. Well, I hope our listeners are too. Welcome to the podcast, Ashley Best. Welcome to the podcast, our very new guest. And if her last name has anything to say about it, she might be our best guest ever. Welcome, Ashley Best. Hello, thank you for having me. Before that intro, Georgia said she's got something up her sleeve. <laughs> I think we've both been left very disappointed. <laughs> oh, was that it? <laughs> oh, yeah, no. I the last name. Take, take the bit out where Ashley goes, oh, is that it? <laughs> no, look, love a pun. I'm sorry, Ashley. Had to be done. I'm embarrassing myself yet again on another podcast. I was expecting so much more. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, we are here. We're back at another episode. So we have to ask our guest, Ashley, if she was a drink at the bar, what would she be and why? Well, there are two options, really. Mm-hmm. The first is a, um, a tequila shot with uh, salt and lime because I'm often a bit salty, often a bit sour, <laughs> but I'm a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I'm very memorable and I rarely contain animal products. So oh, I haven't had that answer yet. Very nice. <laughs> the second option is um, a VB because I'm in Victoria and I'm a little bitter about the lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> I love the contrast. I love the contrast. I think it's two very different people drinking those drinks. <laughs> yeah, split personality right there. <laughs> but with a running theme of bitterness. <laughs> I'm sure that hasn't come across so far at all, and I don't think you are, Ashley. I think we're getting the friendly, fun tequila shot side today for sure. 
Oh, well, that's good. It's a good day. Oh, I've no issue with the VB. I think the VB's very down to earth and, mm-hmm. you know, an honest person. Very Australian. Also has bitter in the name and things. Mm. Um, you mentioned, actually, that you're in Victoria at the moment. How's that very quickly? Yeah, so I'm in Melbourne. Um, yeah. Look, it's it's pretty quiet. We're not doing a lot. There was Someone had some music playing yesterday and... Um, both my partner and I were like, what is going on? We haven't heard anything like that going for a while. Um, so, yeah, not, not a lot happening down here. Um, Melbourne's cultural scene has sort of been stifled a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're, we're getting there. The numbers are coming down, so we're hopeful. Um, I think it's been a hard time for a lot of people down mm-hmm. here. Um, and, you know, this, this experience won't soon be forgotten. But, yeah, it, it's getting better mm-hmm. slowly. Are you coming back up to Sydney anytime soon or is this long-term for you? Um, well, I moved down here a little over 12 months ago to start my PhD. So I plan to stay here until at least the end of my PhD, but um, maybe longer. We'll see. I do I do like Melbourne. Yep. Sydney has nicer beaches mm. um, and better weather, objectively, mm. better mm-hmm. weather. <laughs> but there's a lot going for Melbourne as well. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It's a little bit upsetting, actually. Usually, such a buzzing city to be almost derailed by a virus, but I'm sure it'll get back to there. Yeah, our nightlife at the moment is comparable to Sydney's. Um, <laughs> sorry, that that was a joke by the chaser. I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, rip off that joke. But yes, um... okay, take it, run. We do a lot of stealing. <laughs> well, we're um, feeling for all of you down in Melbourne at the moment. That is for sure. Yes, Thank absolutely. You. And good to see we're on a good trajectory. Um, Ashley, you mentioned you're studying at the moment. We'll get to that in a little bit. We've been given a few notes on your time at UTS Law, and I don't want to embarrass you, but it literally, oh, said, no. <laughs> it literally says on the sheet here that you won literally every academic award there is. Um, you're a UTS Law Valedictorian from 2016, and you did all that while um, juggling mooting and, and you know some very impressive achievements there. Um, do you have any tips for, for other people and particularly the two hosts of this podcast on how to get our marks up? Right, yes. Um, I, I was very busy, but I will fact check you. I didn't win literally every award, not not by any <laughs> I, I don't I don't know how many it was, but that wasn't it was not literally every award. Um, but um, oh gosh, work hard. I'm sure you're both incredibly hard workers, but work hard. Um, I think for me, I was incredibly curious about most if not all of the subjects I, I studied during my law degree and um, I was persistent and I think I think persistence is really what will um, you know and perseverance will will um, improve your academic performance so yeah keep keep engaged but it sounds like you both are very very you know um, busy and um, have very full CVs as well so that's that's wonderful yes but I think we always have a lot of admiration for someone who who can achieve so well academically as well. Because sometimes, I don't know about you, Georgia, but sometimes that's kind of the first thing to fall behind. The academics are the first thing to yeah, fall behind, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I'm I'm not, obviously my marks are all right, but um, I am one person to put things like the podcast and other Law Society stuff ahead of that. So I'm working on being a bit more time management and persevering with my law subjects. Yeah. So I think I was. Oh, sorry, go on. No, so we'll take that advice on board. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, I think. I mean, I think I was one of the pe- those people who put their 
study first and everything else fell by the wayside. Mm. Like, my best friend reminds me of the time that we didn't see each other for three months because I was just too busy with study and I, I kind of look back on that and I'm like, oh gosh, that's not, that's not ideal. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah, I think, I think balance is, balance is key mm-hmm. and, and not just while you're at uni, but throughout your life. So yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I'm learning that through the whole COVID and lockdown, like making sure that you're not just in my room studying and then go to sleep and then back to my desktop to then do uni work. It's about, you know, getting outside and having that balance as well. Yeah, and you perform better when, you're, mm. when your mind is, is clear and you're, you feel good about yourself and your mental health is, is good as well. And you're studying at the moment, actually. We want to talk a little bit about your PhD, which is very, very interesting. Um, you've published publications, uh, three publications on animal law, environmental law, looking at the New Zealand's live export policy, and now you've got uh, you're doing a PhD in animal law. Why um, why animal law? Why is that something you're so passionate about? Oh well, um, why? I guess I, I consider um, animals to be. an important part of our society who are often overlooked. Um, I I think there are a lot of similarities between humans and animals, yet they have a considerably different status under law to what we have. And um, that's always, well, not, you know, it it sort of came to, came into my consciousness, um, I would say, in around third year uni, second year uni. Um, and, And I just felt a strong sense of injustice, yeah. So ever since then, I've been, I've been getting involved in animal law initiatives. I took the subject at UTS, so that's a very good animal law and policy subject at UTS. Um, I also um, joined the New South Wales Young Lawyers Animal Law Committee and was an involved member of, of that um, organisation. Um, did my, and, and, and then I noticed every, every sort of self-selected assignment I was doing, I would um, try to focus it on animals or particularly animals in the law. So. I wrote my jurisprudence paper on animal law and then, you know, I went and did my honours thesis on the non-human rights project litigation, which is um, litigation in the US, which is aiming to get um, sort of some kind of better status, personhood status for non-person property animals, so for animals who are property. Hmm. So you are talking to two students who know nothing about animal law. Can you give us a bit of the rundown of the basics? What is the legal status of animals? Right. So the legal, the, the, generally speaking, mm-hmm. the, the sort of headline answer to that um, is property. Most animals are property or are capable of becoming property mm-hmm. um, under law. So um, if, if you have a dog, do you have any, do you have any companion animals, dogs or cats? Yeah, I have a Labrador. A Labrador, yeah. Justin does too. I got, I got a beagle. I got a beagle. That's... Got a beagle. Yeah. Yeah. So you probably think of them as friends mm-hmm. and as members of the family, probably. Um under law, they are the property of the person in your family who purchased that animal. Um, so they have very little, you know, their status is very comparable or quite comparable to, you know, the TV or the rug or the table. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some sort of uh, accept- or limitations around that. So um, we have laws across Australia that limit um, uh, the way we treat animals, uh, that impose obligations on those in charge of animals. They're called um, animal welfare or anti-cruelty laws, mm-hmm. prevention of cruelty laws. Um, but yes, generally speaking, animals have they, they they don't have a right like we do. Sure. Um, yeah. So an animal law 
is that body of law that, I mean, there are a whole lot of um, views around exactly what comprises animal law and whether or not it necessarily advocates for a better position for animals under law, mm-hmm. or if it's more analytical than that, um, and, and just looks at the law as it is. Um, at, but, but animal law is generally those areas of law that dictate um, the way we treat animals, the way animals are managed, that their environments are managed, um, what we can do to animals, um, you know, and and essentially and any law that really touches on animals, most, most, or a lot of people would consider to be animal law. Mm-hmm. Right. So where, what happens when an animal, I know you're doing a PhD on the legal status of animals in natural disasters. So how yeah. does the status of animals change when they aren't owned or they're in like a national park? Right. So <laughs> wildlife, the, the status of wildlife is an, it's a really interesting topic mm-hmm. because we've got a common law position and then uh, that position has been modified in many jurisdictions um, using legislation. So the common law position is that animals um, can be owned when they are captured mm-hmm. um, or, or come under the control of a human. Um, but in a lot of jurisdictions, the, um, the state, the, the, the crown has asserted ownership of the animal in, um, in, in an act, in a provision of an act. Um, my research kind of looks at how that status and the protections we have for animals hold up or fail to hold up in a disaster. So I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm not looking at Queensland as one of my case study jurisdictions, but Queensland's got a really good piece of their anti-cruelty legislation, which are really good, really, um, uh, I guess, illustrative piece of their anti-cruelty legislation, which says that um, a person will have a duty of care to their animal, to the you know, animal that they have in their possession or who they're in charge of. And they need to provide that animal with food and shelter and water and veterinary treatment. Um, but that provision also qualifies uh, that requirement and says that that only applies, you know, you know, it's only where it's reasonable to provide that. So an event mm-hmm. that might dictate reasonableness could be a flood or, some, or a fire or some kind of natural disaster. So what that means is that that provision, which ordinarily would protect an animal, can become uncertain in the event of a disaster. So I'm sort of looking, that's sort of what I'm looking at, but with respect to other jurisdictions. Um, And I'm also looking at how the law can plan for animals in disasters and um, sort of bridge that gap that is created in their status um, when when a disaster occurs. Right. Almost seems like there's an element of tort law to it when you look at negligence and duty of care and that sort of thing. Great. Yes, and that yeah, that's absolutely come up. Some of one of my supervisors has put some comments on my draft saying, you know, this is um, this kind of um, that's right. That the, the sort of when you're looking at the standard of care required, that kind of brings in tortious concepts. So that's something else I need to go and revisit. I haven't. Um, haven't really looked at torts much since 2012, so that's, uh, that might be a little bit traumatic. But <laughs> oh, that'd be a traumatic experience for me as well. Gosh. Anyway, <laughs> with like the bushfires earlier this year, which would obviously be a natural disaster, have there been any law changes or is there more advocacy or anything going on in the world of animal law? Yeah, so um, I've actually just had my head in all the documents that have been published post post bushfires over the past couple of weeks as I've been writing up a paper. Um, 
animals have featured to some extent in some of the sort of uh, in the Royal Commission that's going on into national natural disaster arrangement. Um, uh, and they've also featured to some extent in the state-based inquiries. We haven't really got a roadmap or an indication of policy change at this stage, um, but there, there does seem to be a major emphasis, particularly coming from um, sort of uh, expert reports. So for example, I don't know if you heard the WWF released a report um, into the wildlife toll where they estimated that 3 billion animals were in the path of the bushfire, the, the Australian bushfires between 2019 to 2020. So they've made some recommendations around improving habitat connectivity and availability and, and the availability of wildlife um, sort of refuge areas. Um, and, and that, of course, will that, that, that will require change to the way we manage land and resources more generally. Um, but yes, I, I'm sort of, I'm hope, quietly hopeful that there might be some changes around the way we, we, we plan for animals in disasters, not just that we don't just have a response where we, you know, deploy wildlife rescuers and carers, which, you know, wildlife rescuers and carers are critical. I, I volunteer with Wildlife Victoria myself and they do an important job. But what I'm hoping is that we um, we see more in the way of um, uh, pr prevention, mm -hmm. so, that, so that we don't have to deploy that response. Um, yeah. So so by making sure animals have sufficient habitat where they can escape the fire too. Yeah, I, I'd imagine obviously bushfires is a major natural concern, but across the world there's you know earthquakes and tsunamis in different countries. How does Australian law sort of hold up against the laws of other countries when it comes to animal protection? Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's good in some ways. So generally speaking, animal law in Australia is robust in, in many ways, but in other ways, it's significantly lacking as well. Um, so um, certain organisations rate different countries based on how good their laws are, and Australia doesn't tend to perform amazingly well. Um, countries that perform well include Switzerland and other sort of um, Scandinavian countries. Yeah. Um, um, sort of, yeah, Europe is, is often a high performer. But in terms of animal disaster law, Australia is not too bad. We, we, have, some, we have some provisions. Four states, um, at least four states have, uh, you know, proper planning instruments for animals in disasters where they've, they, they've um, accommodated the needs of animals within the broader emergency management framework. Um, and that, that's all sort of happened. Those have been developed since the Black Saturday bushfires back in 2009. Mm -hmm. um, there are some states, you know, jurisdictions that have um, sort of, uh, you know, different forms of laws. So in the US, they've got a federal, what they've called, got the, what they call the Pets Act, which was enacted after Hurricane Katrina, which requires state and local organisations to allow uh, or to, to, to um, consider the needs of pets, uh, companion animals and assistance animals in evacuations. Because what happened in Hurricane Katrina was that a lot of people were told you can't evacuate it, a lot of people, in, in particularly in New Orleans, were told you can't evacuate with your dog or cat. Um, and so a lot of people stay behind. And um, it's, it's um, I guess, suspected or considered that a lot of people died and a lot of animals died because of hostile animal evac uh, 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 hosti hostility towards animals in the evacuation process. So, yeah, we've seen developments wow. in the US, seen developments in New Zealand. Um, Italy is quite good. But... It's hard to compare because some countries have really bad natural disasters and others aren't as badly impacted. So it's it's one of those things where 
different countries will have different needs. Mm. And Ashley, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this. Well, I hope there's a lot of people listening to this with, uh, <laughs> with you know, some sort of passion in this area. You know, even when you spoke about property, I thought of my dog and was a little bit taken aback by that. How is the, you know, what's the best way for a law student who's passionate about animal law to go about getting into the profession? Yeah, look, it's, it's, um, it's, that's an interesting question because it's not a terribly vocational field. So if you, you know, if we're talking about say banking law, I'd be like, well, I can name, you know, however many <laughs> firms in Sydney that practice banking law. But animal law isn't really practiced in commercial or, or private practice terribly much. A couple of exceptions to that. My friends, um, Mike and Neiman, have started a firm in Canberra where it's an animal law firm. So there are a couple <coughs> of firms that actually practice animal law as their core practice area. Um, uh, but in terms of getting involved, one, one thing you can do is um, take the subject and Voiceless has a great list of institutions, universities that offer the subject on their website. Um, so that's voiceless. Um, the the other, other things you can do are, you know, joining uh, organisations like the New South Wales Young Lawyers Animal Law Committee. That's full of great people who I've worked with, um, who have known for many years. Um, uh, and then there's also volunteering. You can volunteer with um, organisations like Animal Defenders Office. And increasingly, commercial firms or um, private practice firms are um, integrating animal law within their pro bono practice. Mm -hmm. So Morris Blackburn has, has been quite good on this front. I think it might be Clifford Chance as well, that, that I've, I think I saw their name recently. Um, King and Wood Mallisons, I think, has done, has done some of that. So um, even when I was at Allen's, I had a couple of um, animal law bits and pieces come through. We acted for WWF on a, that was more of a wildlife environmental issue, but it still affected animals. So. You can express it if you express an interest. You may be able to, um, to to kind of find work in that area, even if you're in a more mainstream practice. Um, the other sort of you know option is well, I'm doing academic research in in animals and the law, um, so I know that not every law student would go, oh yeah, I want to go straight into a PhD when I finish my my degree, but. You know, there's always further research. There are masters in animal law in the US that you can do. And a lot of the big, even the big US unis like Harvard and Yale are increasingly um, interested in the area. So further study, um, you know, volunteering opportunities, uh, professional organisations, there's quite a lot. Mm. And you mentioned the Animal Defenders Office. What do they do? Yeah, so they're a community legal centre based in Canberra. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's just a wonderful organisation. Um, they do sort of, they, they kind of, like an ordinary community legal centre, they get requests for advice from individuals and they, um, uh, you know, provide written advice um, and direction as required by the case at hand. So, um, yeah, they, they and I, I believe they service, you know, um, individuals across, they provide services to individuals across Australia. There's also the Animal Law Institute that um, provides legal advice as well. They're based in Melbourne, I believe. So, and they're doing a lot around puppy farming. Mm. Right. Yeah, puppy farming being um, where um, sort of some animals are from reputable, you know, some pets you can, you can get from reputable breeders, others you get from, um, unfortunately come from these really squalid, um, cramped environments where it's like a breeding factory. And mm. they're often called puppy mills. 
So the Animal Law Institute's doing a lot of work trying to um, improve the regulation and, and um, I guess, the you know, enforcement of rules around that area. Hmm. If someone was looking to go and buy a puppy today, what? how do they look out for the signs of puppy mills and ensure that they're getting a dog from somewhere that's reputable? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess my little plug is go to, you know, rescuing animals yeah. is always a good option. So mm. um, we um, we got my we, – we adopted a dog, Maisie, from um, – uh, from Jack Russell Rescue a few years ago, and she's, you know, a little bit broken, but she's beautiful. Mm. Um, <laughs> she's a beautiful dog. But if you um, are after a, a you, you don't wish to um, adopt a dog that's been rescued for, for who has been rescued rather for any particular reason, um, there are a few signs, telltale signs. So uh, one that's always stood out to me is, are you allowed to go in and see the mum? Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you're just, you know, you know, if you buy a puppy from the shop and you don't know anything about the background, well, you can't really verify. But if you're able to go to the breeder's property and inspect and see the conditions in which the mum and, and the, you know, well, the parents generally are kept in and the other animals are kept in, that that's um, one one good sign. But RSPCA and I think Animal Welfare League and those, and I think even, not sure if Animals Australia has guidance, but a lot of... Um, animal protection organisations will have guidance on their website around that. Fantastic. And what, what else can the lay person, sort of looking outside of law, what can the lay person kind of do to, to further the cause of animal protection in Australia? Well, I think starting with awareness. I think I think educating yourself and knowing knowing what the issues are, what the, what the big issues are in Australia. We still have some fairly inhumane farming processes or practices here in Australia. It's getting better and there are good options, but... Um, you know, we still sell caged eggs, for example, um, from battery chickens, so chickens in battery farm. Um, so I think it's understanding what different labels mean, what it, what caged eggs are, what free-range eggs are, what barn laid. Going and having a look at that, you can also, you know, get um, apps and sort of there are, you know, online um, uh, ethic, ethics checkers um, uh, around um, products that you can use for, well, in relation to products. Um, I think as well, it, it, uh, you know, understanding the issues beyond just what we consume. So for example, issues like live export is still very much so on the agenda. So understanding what is wrong with it and what alternatives might look like. And you can even engage with your local member on those issues. So I know I've, um, I've been in touch with my various local members a few times about that particular issue because it's really, you know, uh, yeah, it angers me quite a lot. Um, so yeah, there's there's that. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I think I think they're the main the main types of things um, to assist animals awareness and and then implementing that awareness in your um, everyday conduct. Mm. Right. And you uh, mentioned live exports quickly. You've done a publication on New Zealand's live exports. What do they do so well? Like me. Well, <laughs> Yes, well, I mean that was a few years ago, and that was well before the um, the recent golf golf um, livestock um, uh, um, issue where the where the boat um, sank during the typhoon, um, the live export ship sank during the typhoon. Um, so that was from New Zealand. Now New Zealand has effectively banned live export for animals to be slaughtered. However, they have an exception. And that is for animals, and and, and we this has never really uh, 
attracted that much attention until recently. They have an exception for animals who are going to be um, bred overseas, right? Mm-hmm. So not not slaughtered, but bred. Um, and so I used to be of the view that their their system was a lot better. They'd effectively banned it, and that Australia, um, you know, should do the same thing. But I think we've recently been exposed to some of the flaws in New Zealand's um, system as well. So um, I think, look, to be honest, live export is it's inherently it's inherent inherently inhumane you can't put that many animals on a ship for as many weeks as they do and expect the outcomes to be the animal welfare outcomes to be satisfactory right Mm. um and then the other issue with live export sorry get me started um (laughs) the other major issue with live export is that we can't control the basic concept of territorial jurisdiction is that australia cannot control what happens in the us or iraq or indonesia we can't regulate those jurisdictions so any attempt by us we might be able to regulate how animals are treated here perhaps even how they're treated on the boat although we've seen some pretty horrible stuff happening on boats with um heat stress but once they get to indonesia it's very very hard for australia to exert legal force um and that's something that the government just doesn't quite seem to get so um yeah that the as i think to be honest what we should be doing is getting rid of live export, implementing a chilled box meat trade. So we process the animals here in Australia, keep the um, the industry here, keep the um, the jobs here, pack up the the animal products, the meat, and then ship them overseas. And if we, they need them halal or kosher, we can do that here. Right, and mm-hmm. it's another yeah. one of those issues that unless you sort of go looking for it, you don't know much about it. I think. My knowledge of live export was just a 60 minutes program about cows going to Indonesia. Like it's just kind of sort of so far removed unless you take the initiative to educate yourself. I think that's right. And and I mean, this is one issue that is sort of more in the public eye than a lot of others, because I mean, Animals Australia and the RSPC have done a very good job of raising awareness. Um, but I agree with you. I sort of came across this issue of live export when I, you know, I was in about second year uni and I went and did some digging and I was like, my Lord, like this is unbelievable. So I think, again, it comes back to this um, self-education awareness around what the issues are in Australia and how we can improve because we're a nation that loves animals. Mm. It's, and it's quite interesting. I've spoke, I spoke with a French person last year who said, you know, she was working, um, when I was at the EPA, she was working in an office on the same level, a government office on the same level. And she said, you know, um, uh, I said, you know, we're talking about foie gras, which is the fatty liver where they sort of the, the geese, you know, um, or the ducks or, you know. Um, and, um, you know, she was like, I said, oh, I just can't get around it. I struggle with that from an ethical perspective. And she goes, yes, but you're Australian and Australians love animals. And I'm like, well, maybe we do, but maybe then we need to be demanding more from our government. Like we need to say, this is who we are and we want better. Mm. Consolidate that love in the law, I suppose. <laughs> yes, well, the law is a powerful tool um, for securing social change. So, mm. yeah, it's, it's, um, I've always been taken by the idea of animal law for that reason. Certainly. And it's been great having you on, actually, because I think there's going to be a lot of UTS law students sitting at home sort of, um, who didn't think about this much before that now have something to think about. 
Oh, well, I'm pleased. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And, I'm, and thank you for your interest in animal law. <laughs> no worries. It's something that we don't know much about. And so I'm particularly interested to hear about the live imports because I'm going to go and do some research again. Because yeah. I, yeah, it was on the news and a big deal. And then, oh gosh, I sound so naive, but uh, a big deal like a couple of years ago. And then it sort of went to the wayside with other issues. And it's really unfortunate that things that are so important can be thrown to the wayside I guess there's more important things and I'm doing air quotes here because there's not more important things but that more important things come up yeah I think that's right and and the media has a big role to play in that because mm. the media helps us to um become aware of issues but they like to keep things um uh, you know really topical yeah and they like that you know the newest and that and that's and if they're the ones controlling our information feed then we are going to necessarily churn through different topics. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, this, the Animals Australia is still doing great work on it, and um, so is the RSPCA. And um, I'm I'm hopeful if we, you know, if there there is a change of sentiment or a change of government, that we might um we might get over the line, particularly with the um, sheep exports to the Middle East. Fantastic. Well, well it's been Ashley, and uh, you're welcome on the bar anytime. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. And it was great to meet you both. No, it was great to meet you too. Looking forward to hearing about what you find out at the completion of your PhD. Oh, thank you. Yes, it feels like a long time, long time away, but we'll get there. (laughs) Well, best of luck with it and sending our love from Sydney to you and everyone else in Melbourne. Thank you. We appreciate it. No worries. Well, we better wrap that episode up here. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, This has been another episode of The Bar. I've been Georgia. I've been Justin. And we'll see you next time at The Bar.